Hi, I'm Melissa from Minneapolis. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Thanks. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is the author Stephen Johnson. Uh, his brand new book, uh, the latest in a series of interdisciplinary uh, science, history, and culture books, is called "The Invention of Air: A Story of Science, Faith, Revolution, and the Birth of America." It's uh, sort of a history of ideas in the guise of uh, biography. Um, welcome to the program. My pleasure. Steven. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's talk. I'm, I'm living with this um, petrifying fear that at some point I'm going to call the main subject of your book, Joseph Priestley, Jason Priestley. If we want to go into 90210, we can talk about that too. I'm, <laughs> okay. you know, I wrote a book about pop culture too. I can you totally did. talk I'm, about that. I'm right here with you. <laughs> I'm just scared it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen at some point. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about Joseph Priestley, uh, first, sort of, sort of in broad biographical terms. He actually started his career doing something sort of the 18th century equivalent to, uh, or at least his science career, doing something like the 18th century equivalent to what you do, writing a popular, uh, science book. Tell me about how he came into science. Well, you know, he was a classic Enlightenment era figure and that he was just interested in a million different things and he was a dabbler in all these different fields and he'd gotten interested in electricity in some ways because electricity was the the fashionable thing if you if you had a kind of a, a side interest in science you had a little electrical machine uh, and people would have these things around in their parlors and you know after dinner they would charge them up and give each other shocks and I was interested that a lot of the writing about uh electricity came from the perspective of people who might uh want to tell people how to put on electricity shows Yeah yeah no it was I mean it was kind of the Nintendo Wii of the period you know people <laughs> were like look at this amazing thing about and so he he was interested both in the kind of gadgetry of it but he was also interested in the science and so he had this idea that someone should tell the story of the last 50 years of, of kind of innovation and, and kind of breakthroughs that had happened. And crucially, to tell it as a story, to write it in a popular voice, to write it in English, which was very unusual for a scientific tract at that point, and to tell it as a narrative of progress, which is really not something that had been done very much before. And so in some ways, he kind of invented the whole genre of popular science writing, which, as you say, is partially how I make my living now. So I'm kind of indebted to him for that. But he, but he had this problem, which is that he couldn't really get access to the data. It was very hard to find all the scholarship, basically. It was, there was no internet, obviously. There were no real libraries. And a lot of it was kind of trapped in private correspondence between these other amateur scientists who were trading letters back and forth. And so he had to kind of break into that information network on some level. And that's, and that's how he met Benjamin Franklin. Now, when you say, uh, first of all, when you say most stuff wasn't written in English, that's because it was written in what, Latin? In Latin, yeah, yeah. I mean, like Newton's, all Newton stuff was written in Latin. So there was, there was kind of this thing of, if it's scholarship, if it's serious, it should be written in Latin, and which was totally bizarre. And, and Priestley's whole life was about 
you know, the kind of open, accessible flow of information. Almost everything he did in all the different fields, and he was a great multidisciplinarian, but almost all the things that he did were united by this idea that information should be accessible, it should be intelligible, and it should be it should be encouraged to kind of circulate as widely as possible. Okay, so he basically goes to a club meeting of all the top electricity dudes, uh, not least of whom was Benjamin Franklin, and kind of runs this idea by them. How how did it go from him sort of like coming in and being like, hey, can I be you guys' official biographer, to a point where he actually started conducting experiments on his on his own? Well, it, you know, it was a really it was a direct impact of Franklin, and in some ways, the first half of the book is kind of this story of this amazing friendship between Franklin and Priestley, who really influenced each other in all these wonderful ways, and and Franklin obviously took. You know, well, to the he liked the idea of somebody writing a book about yeah. <laughs> the history of electricity because he was going to be the hero of the book, and it was Priestley who first wrote the story of Franklin and the kite, which is pretty pretty funny. No one Franklin ever, was a pretty big Ben Franklin fan. Yeah, I mean, he was happy to have people, uh, you know, write these uh, kind of stories about him. But but Franklin was like, listen, you know, you should get into the science too. Like, do your own experiments, and that was that was the period. It was it was possible, you know, with a little bit of equipment in your home lab to do pioneering work because there just was a whole world of phenomena that had not yet had the scientific method applied to it. And so Priestley actually did do some, you know, in, in the final book that he wrote, he, he both tells the story of all this, you know, history and, and then talks about his own experiments. And then he has all these, you know, kind of tips for how to have your own parlor, you know, tricks and things like that. So it's a, it's a weird mix of, uh, it's not like a science book you would read today in some sense, but, but part of the idea was to, get other people doing these experiments themselves. You know, it was, it was like, here's how you do it. You know, this is the story, and then here, here are the tools you need, and here's how you can do this in your own home. He was a minister, and um, the the chemical portion of his career sort of got, or the, I should say the chemistry portion of his career got kick-started basically by virtue of him getting transferred. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was, yeah, so he had this, you know, kind of gig throughout, largely throughout his life as a minister in various capacities. And he, he, he gets a gig in, in Leeds. And, and one of the first things that happens, he moves to Leeds and he's put up in this kind of temporary house and across the street, um, in, the, in his backyard, basically there's a, there's a brewery. And so he's, you know, inquisitive guy. So he wanders over one day and he notices that there's this kind of interesting haze coming off of the, the beer that's brewing in these vats. And so he asks the proprietors if he could do some science experiments you know, <laughs> in their brewery. Speaking of things that haven't had the scientific method applied well, to them. Exactly right. I just love the idea of the wacky next-door neighbor minister. We're like, would you mind if I did a little bit of science in your lab? I love the idea of just these vast vistas of knowledge spreading out before him. And he's like, I know what I'll work on. <laughs> yeah, beer. <laughs> so he, so he, he, he goes, he discovers that after doing a bunch of things, he discovers that if you pour water, ordinary water, back and forth, over the beer and then drink it that it will have this delightful fizzy property and so he invents soda water invents carbonated water and typically never you know makes a dime he immediately writes everybody about it you know tries to builds a little machine for generating it and, and writes a pamphlet about how you can generate your own soda water never patents it or does anything like that but uh, but, you know, he later described that as his happiest discovery, which is kind of nice, I think. It's sort of the uh, the kickoff of uh, what you describe as sort of a an amazing winning streak yeah. of discoveries. Yeah, he goes on this streak in the 1770s. And so what, one of the things that I'm really interested with this book, and in some ways this is a theme of a bunch of the books, is is 
when you have somebody who gets a hot hand in, in a field like this or in a bunch of fields, or when you have a culture that seems to get a hot hand and seems to be suddenly capable of innovating and there's a lot of change, why does that happen? What's going on? How can we can we explain it anyway? You can tell the story, but like, isn't it just as important to kind of try and explain why, not just what happened, right? And so with Priestley, he he embarks on this period for about ten years where he just is enormously productive, and he, he's most famous during this period for discovering or isolating oxygen for the first time, which is generally how he's remembered. If people know the name, they know him as the discoverer of oxygen, but. That's a weird one because he really wasn't the first to do it, and he kind of messed it up in all these ways when he, when he interpreted what he had discovered. But I think he should actually be in the Pantheon as much for something else that he did, which he did, definitively did do first, which is that he was the first person to realize that plants were creating oxygen in a, in a series of experiments he did in Leeds in 1771. And that's, I mean, that's really the beginning of kind of the ecosystem's view of the world in some ways. I mean, we, have, we now understand that the Earth's atmosphere would be less than 1% oxygen, it were not for the plants. Um, but because the plants expel oxygen as part of photosynthesis, we live in this bubble, this artificial life support system, entirely engineered by the plants, where our atmosphere is 20% oxygen. And it was Priestley who first really realized this. Um, he was doing these funny experiments with like overturned glass bowls and stuff like that. Tell me what he did to, to, to come to these huge breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it is one of these things that you have to go back and really change your whole mindset to appreciate what was happening because people always ask me why I called it the invention of air and not you know the discovery of air and it's it's in part because it starts in way the story starts with the plants inventing air the plants invent all this oxygen in our in our atmosphere through this evolutionary process but it's also the invention of air as a thing you can study right the invention of this whole concept that air is something that is in an object of inquiry in the first place which as you say it's hard to realize because if you walk around in a world that is filled with lots of stuff that's interesting to study, but then there's this invisible space between all that stuff, why would you study the invisible space? There's nothing there, right? But people have started to realize that in part because they developed a technology, the air pump, and the air pump is kind of crucial to this story because the air pump, which had been pioneered the, year, the century before, enabled you to create a vacuum. And so you could suck all the air out of an environment, pump all the air out of an environment, and then kind of seal it off, and then that environment would behave differently. A candle wouldn't light in it, for instance. Bells wouldn't ring in it and things like that. And so you could you could show, okay, the air, there's a difference between air and non-air, even though they look exactly the same. And so then they started to get this idea that maybe it was made up of multiple kind of components. And that's where Priestley got interested in it. And his great experiment with, with plant respiration was he, he basically people had known forever that you could take a, a mouse and seal it up in a jar and the mouse would die over time. Um, they didn't quite understand why, but they knew that the mouse would run out of air or would poison the air in some way. Um, Priestley was like, well, I wonder how long it would take a plant to die if you did that. And so he took a little mint plant from his garden, he seals it up in a little jar and uh, waits for it to die. And the plant stubbornly, weirdly, refuses to die. And so he thinks, well, that's odd. I, you know, it's still growing, actually. That wasn't what I was expecting. And so then he has this great, brilliant little stroke of inspiration, which is that he goes and he gets a candle, and he puts a candle inside this jar with this mint plant and seals it up and then lights the candle from the outside of the jar using a burning lens, basically, which concentrates the sun's rays, lights the candle, and then burns all the oxygen out of the jar. So at that point, the candle will not light because there's no oxygen to support combustion. And a mouse in that situation would immediately start to die because there's no air to breathe. He leaves it, comes back in two weeks, tries to light the candle, the 
candle lights, even though there's no... So suddenly there's air there where there was no air before. So he's like, wow, is the plant creating the air? So he does it a bunch of times, and then he finally becomes convinced that he's actually going you know, to hit upon something. And it's Franklin that he writes to almost first about it. And it's Franklin who suggests that this is part of a larger global system that he's discovered. Tell me about why suggesting that he discovered uh, oxygen isn't exactly correct. What was the kind of, what was his blunder? Well, there were two things. The first is he was not technically the first. He was the first to publish it. But the biggest problem was that he, there was another guy, Scheele, who had, who had technically isolated it before. And we actually, we think that Priestley had isolated it before as well, but didn't realize that. This is pure oxygen, basically, that he was discovering. And... But the problem was that he was in the sway of this interesting and entirely wrong theory called the phlogiston theory. And the phlogiston theory basically was a theory of why things burned. And the idea was that there was some substance that was kind of intrinsic to things that were capable of burning. Specifically phlogiston. <laughs> Said phlogiston. <laughs> and it, it would, it would when things burned, it would kind of be emitted into the air, and the air would then be saturated with phlogiston. And this is this is turns out to be exactly wrong. In fact, what's happening is that there's something in the air, oxygen, that is combusting and fusing with the thing that's burning, which is why things that have burned are slightly heavier than things that have not burned. Um, so when Priestley discovered this very this pure oxygen that uh, was much more combustible, so a, a candle flame in pure oxygen would burn much brighter than a, than a normal flame in 20% oxygen. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the author Stephen Johnson. His new book is The Invention of Air, a story of science, faith, revolution, and the birth of America. It tells the story of 18th century inventor, scientist, and writer Joseph Priestley. Tell me a little bit about how Priestley's story ties in with your interests. I, I introduced you at the top of the show as... Um, an interdisciplinary, uh, you know, science and culture writer. What was it about? Um, what was it about this story specifically that got you excited? Well, I, I originally was drawn to it because of the story that we just told about the the discovery of plant respiration, which I was going to tell as a smaller anecdote in another book that I was going to write about ideas and innovation in general, and. So in digging around on a little bit more about Priestley, I realized that he had this whole larger connection to the American founding fathers, both in terms of Franklin, and then he eventually emigrates to America and has a huge impact on Jefferson and on Adams and shows up in all these interesting points in our country's history. And so I had this kind of moment of inspiration in reading about this where I thought, oh, no, no, wait, hold on, this is I'll write this book first. And and then I'll go write that other book. But I should write this book because it'll be my it, it, in my head. It was like this will be my version of the founding father genre books that you know are out there. There there are a ton of them. And but I'll do it from an outsider perspective, both in the sense of writing about this guy who is is rarely written about. He was British, um, and though though he had a huge impact, he is, most people don't know about him. And I'll do it in in my way. So I'll do it almost as a, the story of the American Revolution as a science story, um, and and I'll try and connect all these different disciplines together and and trying to tell it. And so, the second I kind of had that thought, it was very clear to me that it was the book that I that I had to write, and that it made a lot of sense, and that it had a bunch of connections to the past books uh, because they they all share this interest in in ideas at at kind of turning points in society and why 
both good ideas and bad ideas survive as, as long as they do. So phlogiston is very interesting as a bad idea that stuck around that Priestley was never really able to shake. I mean, he, li- he lived under the kind of rubric of that theory for the rest of his life. He never got over it on some level, despite his great intelligence and his ability to see around so many other corners. So, so it just is right in this kind of wheelhouse of all these interests, but it was a, it was a period kind of early late enlightenment, early American history that I had never written about before. And so that was really exciting to just jump in there and do something totally new. You know, I, I heard you get excited relating the two inventions of air, his and that of, you know, the, the first plants that invented photosynthesis. Um, it seems like it's also kind of a story about about systems in yeah. in in that sense, and also and, and also you know I I heard you get really excited about the kind of the information systems side of it. In this case, the information systems largely involving quills and I guess parchment or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know the two the two other things that I think are relevant. The first is a little bit. So the the book I wrote before this was the Ghost Map, which was about this cholera epidemic in in London. And these two books are really quite similar. They're both idea books wrapped around a historical narrative. Um, and in some ways, both of them are a little bit kind of like deliberately obscure. So I'd written this book, Everything Bad is Good for You, about pop culture, which was controversial. And you know, and part of me, just in terms of thinking about the trajectory of the books, was like, okay, that was a good book for me to write. I'm glad I wrote it. Um, but next, I'm going to do 19th century cholera, just to show that I'm not trying to get on all the talk shows. you know. And then... And then now I'm going to do 18th century chemistry and see if I can make an interesting book out of that. So there's a little bit of kind of like <laughs> wanting to confound people in their expectations about them. But on the other hand, there is there are these unifying themes that keep coming back, and and the systems one is a big one. And in in the in the book, in the last two books actually, I've talked about it as this kind of model of what I call the long zoom, which is when you're trying to explain how historical change happens, how changes in the intellectual world happen, how anything really happens in history, that you can't you can't purely tell the story on the kind of individual biographical level, and you can't purely tell the story in kind of sociological kind of class dimensions. Um, that you have to move kind of up and down the chain, and you have to move everything from like the information networks of the time, the, the postal system, which is crucial to this story, the changes in energy through society, the rise of coffee as a daytime stimulant, which inspired a lot of the Enlightenment. All these things are contributing to the question of why this happened at this particular point. And so it was a great tableau, in a sense, for me to kind of exercise that theory and and practice a little bit. What was so cool about this period as uh, as a turning point? What was the corner that was being turned? Well, there's a a kind of a macro corner of recognizing the the range of the scientific method. Um, And... I think one of the lessons of it, particularly when we think about the Founding Fathers, is that in some ways their political values came out of the progress that they had seen in Enlightenment science over the preceding century or so. That they had this sense of like, okay, we can see what the march of reason is capable of doing in shaping our understanding of the world or generating new amazing technologies or, you know, saving us from our buildings being struck by lightning or whatever it is that, you know, the science was unfolding. Um, what if we took that same process and applied it to our, our social systems, our, our forms of government? Um, and so it's not really that the founding fathers, I think, had this, you know, kind of side interest in, you know, amusing, you know, kind of character side interest in 
in, in science. In some ways, it's the core part of their view of the world. And it shaped everything that they did, uh, particularly Franklin and particularly Jefferson. And that's one of the reasons why they idolized Priestley so much. So it was really this sense of like, wow, we have this con new conceptual tool of kind of the empirical method that we can just focus on whatever we want. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to work if you do it right. If you just follow these rules, it we'll, we'll get smarter. It seems like that system of getting smarter worked really great for a while until um, very quickly we knew more stuff than one guy's brain could hold or even than one guy's brain and all the books that he'd read yeah. could hold. And that, that led to uh, you know a lot of the Enlightenment and a lot of science in the you know 18th, 19th, and 20th century was more about specialization and categorization taxonomies and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I don't I mean obviously this is a book that celebrates thinking across boundaries and not specializing and and I like to write that way so I'm I'm biased too but you know you don't want to be too sentimental about it on some level we had specialization because exactly as you said there was so much data suddenly that had been unearthed that to be able to do pioneering work suddenly it took going to grad school for six years so you had to invent things like grad school and you had to invent you know kind of <laughs> departments that would train the grad students so that they could specialize in chemistry or whatever it is that they were specializing in all of a sudden a lot of experience need a lot of experiments needed a lot more than a like a, a borrowed laundry sink yeah no you couldn't you can't isolate any fundamental gases in your home lab anymore it's sad but it's you know for no the matter first time, how you finely ground your burning lens exactly is. right right so there's you know there is a like a ceiling on it um and that's good that's a sign of progress but it's also i think you know it, the, the flip side of that is that we've seen some of the most interesting kind of develop some most important developments in the last 30 or 40 years have been kind of cross-disciplinary meta sciences um so Ecosystem science, Earth system science, that Priestley helped invent in some ways so many years ago, you know, involves by definition multiple disciplines talking to each other, agreeing on a research paradigm, agreeing on what the data is, agreeing what the problems are, and so you have to have to make sense of the Earth as a system. You have to have atmospheric physicists and geologists and microbiologists and social scientists who normally don't talk to each other, you know, much less hang out in the coffee house, um, suddenly kind of coming together and agreeing on what the, this platform is going to look like, and so. I think there's a bit of a, you know, kind of return to some of those enlightenment values, even if it's it's by definition going to be more specialized this time around. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Stephen Johnson, whose new book is The Invention of Air. We'll have more with him in just a minute. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you want a taste of the lighter side of MaximumFun.org, try searching for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes or visiting our blog and clicking on Jordan Jesse Go. It's an irreverent talk show for children of all ages, except for children. And it's absolutely free via podcast from MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. My guest is author Stephen Johnson. His new book about the 18th century inventor, writer, theologian, and more, Joseph Priestley, is The Invention of Air. Given the immensity of, of data available, given the you know, depth of knowledge that's required to you know, move forward in 2009 or whatever year this is, 
2009, yeah. God, I, you can you can see just about how much data I can hold in my you brain. You can totally go online and find out what year it is. That's yeah. what I think. It's very easy now. <laughs> what, what are the ways that um, information systems that are available now uh, allow us to find new ways of understanding the world in a sort of a similar way to the way uh, that Priestley did in the 18th century. Well, one of the things that I noticed a lot in writing this book, this was a breakthrough book. I always say that Emergence, my second book, was the first post-Google book I wrote. It was the first book where like, Google as a search tool was suddenly influential in that writing the book. And this is the first book where Google Books was a crucial component in that Google has been scanning and digitizing all these public domain books in this collaboration with these libraries. And a, a huge number of Priestley's books are available as like downloadable, searchable PDFs that you can get and just put on your hard drive and search in their original printings. It would have been incredibly hard to find these books in their original printings before. Now you can actually search them, which you would have never been able to do before. And what it's, what it's meaning is, just as Priestley had a hard time getting to the letters, we've had a hard time in the first phase of the Google age of getting to books. like Because everything was routing through Google and Google wasn't indexing books, it meant that we were just implicitly, without really wanting to, kind of skewing our search for knowledge towards anything that was online, which meant blog posts and news articles and some magazine articles, and which is a problem because some of the best information is still in books and will be continue to be in books. And I say that as a book author. Um, <laughs> and so now, what, what I what I really noticed in this this is the first book of mine where I really felt that I had this access to a whole universe of information that is, had been kind of trapped in amber kind of in, in, in libraries and because it wasn't searchable, um, that's starting to kind of come back to life. And that, that is going to be really powerful when it, when it fully happens. You mentioned Priestley's relationship with Adams and Jefferson. Um, obviously, uh, the relationship between Adams and Jefferson is like the, one of the dominant themes of early American history. Um, and Priestley had a sort of, uh, 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 central outsiders' role in it. Um, w- one of the one of the things that feels like a, a contemporary resonance is th- that the relationship that you only briefly alluded to between empirical knowledge and you know s- scientific uh, research and civil society and and governance do you do you feel like there's any resonances between contemporary uh the contemporary united states and and that period absolutely i mean well this is that was the other reason i wrote the book i mean i wrote the book uh it was lucky actually i've 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 thought like this with past books and it hasn't worked out like when i wrote emergence i was like this will be a great book for the gore administration and then that totally didn't work out at all (laughs) um but with this book when i when I had the idea, I was like, listen, you know, this is a book about how important it was to the American founders and, and their friend Priestley to connect the insights of science with the political worldview and with the religious worldview, actually. Um, and the, to be, you know, an engaged citizen in the world, you had to you had to be informed and educated about all these things, and you had to build bridges between these different worlds. And so I was thinking just about the timing of the book. I was like, you know, I could write this this summer and probably... It would come out, you know, after the election, and I was—I knew we were going to have some kind of change, and I figured we would probably have the change, some form of the change that we had, and and I figured that there would be some movement towards science, or kind of some sense that science would have to become more important um, than it had it for the previous eight years, and so 
you know, it was very striking that Obama had that whole thing in the in the inaugural address about restoring science to its proper place. You know, that was um, that was good for book sales. I really enjoyed your um, your last book, uh, the Ghost Map, which is not to say that I didn't also really enjoy this book. <laughs> but um, there's there's an amazing part uh, in the beginning uh, that totally blew my mind. Uh, basically, speaking of taxonomies. Yeah. A taxonomy of uh, refuse collectors, <laughs> in and I just feel like I would I would hate it if I had you in here and I didn't bring up the taxonomy of poop. Yeah, yeah, and etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah, my kids, my kids were when I was writing Ghost Map, they were like four and two, and the baby hadn't been born yet, and. They got wind at some point that Daddy was writing a book about poop, and they were like, "That is a fantastic <laughs> topic for a book. Every all books should be about poop." Um, yeah, and that was one of those things. It's funny with books. Like I knew the intro to that book that you're describing. That was one of the things that was clear in my head from like day one of the idea. I was like, "I'll start it with, I'll literally just immerse people in human waste for like the first <laughs> ten pages and describe." And 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 I wanted to have this taxonomy exactly of all the different kinds of scavengers, so just to get a sense of it, so you're there. And I knew it would just be a great kind of set piece. And but the thing I didn't know is this: there's this one kind of it, the opening section ends with this image of these guys that would go through the sewer hunters, who would go through the sewer, and the, basically like every now and then the kind of like the methane gas would get so intense from all the human waste that they're walk, wading through um, that their little kerosene lamps would explode and they would be basically immolated in this this fiery poop fire. Poop fire. Sure. Um, and that was just like, once I had that image, I was like, okay, this, this first chapter is golden. <laughs> <laughs> but my grandmother was not so excited about it, but whatever, that's okay. <laughs> Stephen Johnson's new book is The Invention of Air. You can find him online at stephenberlinjohnson.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our intern is Brian Fernandez. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And in fact, I insist that you do so. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me directly at jesse, that's J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. I guess that's about it. We'll see you next time, huh, on the Sound of Young America.